sometimes on significant dates, we have the opportunity to look back and to ask, how do things look different? Well, let me start with, um, well, let's, let's just put it out there. Yesterday, had the opportunity to look back and ask how the Huskers look different. Um, we'll just leave it at that. But today we could look back and we could ask, how does our country look different after 21 years? Or as a church, we can look back and we can ask, how does our church look different after 67 years? Um, Cecil, back in the back, is one of the charter members, is our charter member. You can ask him today, how does the church look different? But as we look back, I hope that what we say is that while some things look different, there are some things that haven't changed. Our commitment to God, hopefully, has not changed. Our commitment to the gospel stands firm. Our commitment to Jesus Christ is our foundation. In the book of Joshua, if you want to start turning to Joshua chapter 22, in Joshua chapter 22, what we're going to see is an important question. Israel has been at war for seven years conquering the land. For seven years, they've been in battle. Nobody looks the same after seven years. I'm sorry, it's just life. But there's a question. Do they still worship the same God? Is God still their priority? And that's the question that gets answered in Joshua chapter 22. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. And what I want you to see here is that even though we can get caught up in the change that occurs, our foundation needs to stay the same. And we're going to see four things that we have to remember as we think about that foundation staying the same. One is that you can never let your spiritual guard down. Never let your spiritual guard down. Two, God's holiness demands that we provide accountability for sin. Three, accountability may result in being confronted. And finally, we're going to see that someone's actions may be more righteous than we originally thought. So we're going to piece all of this together in Joshua chapter 22. And the nature of Joshua chapter 22, we're going to read through it all right now, and then we'll break it apart into pieces. So read along with me as I read Joshua chapter 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribes of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now, that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their homes, to the half-tribe of Manasseh Moses had given the land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribes Joshua gave the land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, 
return to your homes with great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, when they had acquired in accordance with the command which the Lord gave through Moses. When they come to Galeloth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God, The Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our town altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar. But not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then, in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but is a witness between us and you. 
far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and to turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar the name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. All right, a longer passage, but let's break it down and let's really try to understand and to make sense about what's going on in this passage. At the very beginning, Joshua, after all these victories for seven years, he sends the people, remember there were two and a half tribes that were going to inherit land on the other side of the Jordan. He sends them and he gives them a command. Remember, never let your spiritual guard down. Remember, never let your spiritual guard down. The two and a half tribes had been faithful to go to war. For seven years, they had fought. Their land was on the opposite side of the Jordan. They had asked God to inherit land that was east of the Jordan River, and God had said, yes, we will give you that land, but you are still required to send your soldiers over to fight. After seven years of fighting, separated from their families, separated from their homes, the time had finally come for the tribes to return. The two and a half tribes had been faithful, but the time had come for them to return. And Joshua, in verse 4, gives his blessing on their return. But as he gives his blessing, he reminds them of something important. Yes, you have had great victory. Yes, you have fulfilled your commitments. Yes, you have been part of this army, and it has been amazing, and God has blessed us. But Joshua also reminded the tribes, be careful to be faithful to God. Be careful to remain faithful to God. It's an interesting command. But if you think about life that you have all lived, it's a command that rings true. We have to be careful to remember to be faithful. Life will distract us. When you drive home, there will be a distance between you and this building. Nobody lives here. When you go home, you are going to have to be faithful. You're going to have to be careful to remain to be faithful. It takes care. Actually, Joshua gives six exhortations in his command to be careful. He says, first of all, be careful to keep the commandments. Be careful to follow God's law. Remember, they had the first five books of the Old Testament at this point. And Joshua says, be careful to obey God's commandments. He says, be careful to love the Lord your God. That's an interesting one. Be careful to love God. We have to work. We have to foster a relationship with God. 
He says, be careful to walk in obedience with God. Be careful to obey God. He then again says, be careful to keep his commandments. He says, be careful to hold fast to him, to stick yourself to God, to not allow yourself separation from God. And finally, be careful to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, you've had great victory and you're being allowed to return home, but be careful to remain faithful. Military commands have come to an end. Joshua is no longer going to be giving military orders to these people, but that didn't mean that the people could just do whatever they wanted. They still had to be faithful to God. The reward includes physical blessings, significant physical blessings. They were given great wealth. It talks about large herds of livestock. As they conquered the land, they acquired the livestock that the people had. They returned with precious metals that they were going to be able to use for tools, for jewelry, for all sorts of purposes back at home. It says that they returned with significant clothing. Some of you probably think of that as being a great reward. Others of you were like, don't bring it into my house. But they returned with significant clothing. And then I find the last part of this reward kind of cool. The opportunity to share. So remember, these are the soldiers. Their families are still back at home. And Joshua says, don't forget to share it when you get back home. It's not all yours. It's to share. There's an interesting precedent in the people of Israel Um, which David keeps later and actually comes up earlier in Numbers, and that is that the people who earn the spoils of war, who win the battle, share with the people who weren't in the battle but were supporting the troops. Direct application to the church. We need to make sure to thank those who are praying as much as those who are serving when we do various activities. Make a point of that. You know, when we do VBS, we need to recognize those who prayed for VBS. When we do outreach, we need to recognize those who prayed for outreach. This is a biblical way that God says to handle reward. Pray for those who support as well as those who act. Joshua says, don't let your spiritual guard down. Never let your guard down. I started by describing, looking back on history, and the fact that we can look back and see what we recognize and what we don't recognize. Israel had been at war for seven years. And Joshua says, although you have changed, you are battle-hardened warriors. Don't change your faithfulness to God. No matter what happens, no matter the test of time, never stray from God. An action step for us, we need to determine not to let our spiritual guard down. You hear all sorts of stories about Sunday morning Christians that get home and don't act anything like a Christian. We need to determine that we will not just be Sunday morning Christians, but that we will be 24-7 Christians who remain faithful, who never let their spiritual guard down. In verses 9 through 20, the theme that comes out is to remember God's holiness demands accountability. So after sending the tribes home, an interesting event takes place. A very interesting event. The two and a half tribes leave, and as they are heading back home, remember they have to cross the Jordan River. 
as they are heading back home, before they cross the river, they erect a large altar. This creates a point of debate, a newly erected altar. The altar, if I use the, the altar was located by the tabernacle, and that was where they offered sacrifices. The two and a half tribes erect a new altar. The Hebrew word gadol is used to describe the altar. That means great, imposing, large. The idea is it was a tall structure, a very tall structure. And they erect it on the west side of the Jordan. So the Jordan River, just to give you an idea about what's going on here, the Jordan River sits down in a valley approximately 2,000 feet below cliffs on either side. The valley is, ranges between 5 and 13 miles wide. It's called the Jordan Rift. Uh, it's actually formed by tectonic plates that are pulling apart underneath the, the earth, and it's connected with the Great Rift all the way down in Africa. And it creates a deep, deep valley that the Jordan River flows through with deep, imposing cliffs on either side. It creates a big area of separation, an opportunity for isolation. Some of you are not from Lincoln, Nebraska. Some of you, Emily and I, aren't from Lincoln, Nebraska. You moved here. And if you have moved a substantial difference, you realize something important after a move. The relationships that you thought you would never change, change. Right? Your best friend from high school is no longer your best friend. No matter how hard you try, distance creates separation. It's kind of, it's the way it is. And that's what's going to happen here is the two and a half tribes are worried. If we go this great valley, 2,000 foot cliffs, five miles to 13 miles wide, a river flowing between it, we are going to be separated. And so they build an altar. Commentators have all sorts of views on these two tribal events that are taking place here. Some commentators will argue that the eastern tribes were wrong to have built the altar. Some commentators argue that the western tribes were wrong to have confronted the eastern tribes. I'm going to present an argument. Nobody's wrong in this. Actually, everyone handled things perfect. Okay? So, walk with me through this. God's holiness demands accountability. The eastern tribes knew that separation would create potential problems. And so they erect a memorial to who God is, not an altar. It's called an altar, but they never intended to offer sacrifices on it. So it's more of a memorial. Leviticus 17 verses 8 through 9, if we go there for a second, this is sort of the root problem that's being identified here. Uh, Leviticus 17 verse 8 says, Say to them, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from his people. So the rule in Leviticus was you were only allowed to offer sacrifices at the designated altar where the tent of Shiloh was. You were not allowed to go offer sacrifices anywhere and everywhere. To do so would invite corruption of the religion because who knows what the background is of this person offering the sacrifices. You are to offer sacrifices only at the tent where it's been prescribed 
This is the rule that Israel was to follow. They weren't to just go offer sacrifices anywhere and everywhere. The eastern tribes build this altar. The western tribes think, we got a problem. They're going to start offering sacrifices on it. So the proposed solution was to send a delegation to solve this problem, to understand what's going on. They elect Phineas, the high priest. That makes sense. This is a religious conflict. Let's send the religious leader and 10 other representatives. Phineas was actually already known for his zeal. Phineas is the one who had defended God's honor back in Numbers verse, uh, chapter 25 with the Moabites. So Phineas is already known for his zeal. We're going to send Phineas, and we're going to ask a question. Why would you do this? Why are you building this altar? First point, we've made mistakes before. We've worshipped false gods before, and God judged us. Second point, Achim was one man who made a mistake, and God judged all of us. Why are you building this altar? We do not want anything to do with idolatry. Don't let it in here. This does not work. We don't want it. The second point that Phineas is to make is to let them know that even if we have to reallot the land in order to bring you back into the fold, we'll do it. We'll give you our land. We don't want sin in our nation. God's holiness demands accountability. God's holiness demands that when we see sin, we confront it. But I think this goes a step further. God's holiness demands that if we see something that might be sinful, we should be inquiring about it. We should be asking, what are you doing? Here's my action step. Confront sin as if their life depended on it, because it does. Let me give you an example. Um, when I worked at the university, there were several instances where um, I was notified about a, a significant mental health concern that, uh, that was going on with somebody. And with limited knowledge of the situation, my answer was to call the police and ask them to go check on an individual. I did not know whether or not anything bad was going to happen. But there was a question in the back of my mind, and so my response was to call and ask for help. That's how we should be with sin. You might not know if sin is occurring, but it might look like sin might occur. We should ask. Because we should confront sin as if someone's life depends on it, because it does. Sin destroys, and we should be willing to confront it, even if we don't have all the information. But if we're going to do that, we as individuals also must remember that accountability might result in being confronted. Look at what happens in verses 21 through 29. The delegation arrives. The delegation arrives in uh, the two and a half tribes region on the east of the Jordan. And they ask this question, why are you doing this? This might be sinful. What's going on? 
And how do the tribes respond? They take up arms and go and go to war. No. No. They respond very wisely. The tribes wisely declare their loyalty to God. They're confronted. Somebody has come to them and said, I think you might be sinning. And they don't get upset. They don't take up arms. They don't get defensive. Instead, they declare their loyalty to God. Actually, it's uh, really cool the way it's phrased. They start off by using three different terms for God. They call on El. That's just the general term for God. They call on Elohim, which we often translate as the mighty God. And they call on Yahweh, which is the name of God. All in verse 21. It's like they're stacking on names. God, the mighty one, Yahweh himself, we worship God. Don't worry, we're not going off the deep end here. We are loyal to God. They wisely declare that they are loyal to God by vehemently piling on the names of God. We worship the same God as you. We're not going off the deep end. And then they call on God as their witness. As God is my witness, I am not going into sin. In fact, they say, if I have to pay consequences, I'll pay them happily. If I've done wrong, let God judge us. Instead of getting mad that they were confronted with sin or the potential for sin, they explain themselves. They wisely say, we're just building a reminder that we are part of God's people too. We're worried about this big space, this Jordan rift that stands between you and us. And we're worried in generations to come that that space, physical space, is going to result in spiritual space because we'll no longer be next to each other. We're worried that the people are going to forget who God is. So we have built this great altar as a model of God's altar. Remember how the altar was described? Gadol, great, tall, imposing. That's not the sort of thing you want to carry a cow up to and sacrifice it on, right? It's too big. It's too... It's not going to work. And that's sort of the the declaration that they make. This altar is not for sacrificing. This altar is, is a memorial. The tribes end up wisely, in verse 29, wisely declaring their total commitment to God. Look at verse 29. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord. They are totally committed to God. So let me give you an action step here. If we are, the first action step, going to confront sin, then we also need to be willing to graciously prepare ourselves to be challenged in our actions. Imagine this sort of an environment as a church. If we were a church where people were willing to confront sin or the potential for sin. And on the other side, we had people who were willing to graciously be confronted and to say, you're right, I shouldn't do that. Or to say, actually, it's not quite that bad. Here's the situation that's going on, and here's the decision I made. If we were gracious like that, where we graciously confronted sin and graciously explained ourselves, that's actually how a family operates, right? 
That's how we should operate. That's how Israel operated. Let's look at sort of the results of that by looking at verses 30 through 34. I want you to remember that actions may be more righteous than initially thought. The two and a half tribes defended their actions. They said, no, we're not committing any abominations here by sacrificing off of the altar. We are following God, and this is a memorial. Our actions are more righteous than you initially thought. And look at Phineas in verses 30 through 31. Phineas graciously accepts the explanation. I love Phineas's willingness to accept. He essentially says, that makes sense. I understand. I see what's going on here. Today we know that the Lord is with us. Okay, this makes sense. In verses 32 through 33, the people experienced peaceful resolution. They no longer are going to go to war over this. The war that was going to divide the tribes has turned into peaceful resolution that in fact brings the tribes together as they establish a permanent reminder of God's provision. Look at how they name the altar. They name it a witness between us. A witness between us. Imagine how this could have gone differently. The other tribes west of the Jordan, instead of sending a delegation to ask a question, could have instead armed themselves for war and gone straight to battle. That would have been bad. The two and a half tribes, while receiving the accusation that you've built an altar to sacrifice on, could have gotten defensive, picked up weapons, and gone to war. That would have been bad. Phineas, upon hearing the explanation, could have said, nah, you're making this up. That would have been bad. Instead, at each stage, there was a graciousness and a humility. And so my action step for us here is to graciously prepare yourself to accept an explanation. We live in a fallen world, and sin runs rampant, and any one of us can fall into sin. God established the church partly as a place where we can come in order to have iron sharpening iron, in order to have accountability. If we're going to do this, we have to be gracious. I told you that some commentators think that the uh, Western tribes should have never sent the delegation. They should have just let it be. I don't think so. They should have asked about something that was questionable. Other commentators say that, well, the Eastern tribes should have never built that altar. I don't know that we can make that judgment. I think the judgment we can make is that what could have been a disaster was instead an opportunity to praise God. Look there at how Phineas, at what Phineas says in verse 31. Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. When properly practiced, accountability tells us that God is with us. When practiced according to God's format, accountability brings glory to God. 
That is significant. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We are to sharpen each other. That's our job. So what do we need to do? First of all, determine not to let your spiritual guard down. Second, if you see sin or something that looks like sin, be willing to confront. Be willing to ask questions. Confront as if their life depended on it, because it does. If you have a question, it's worth asking. Third, graciously prepare yourself to be challenged for somebody to ask you, I noticed you going into this place. Is that safe for you to be going there? I noticed that you were participating in this activity. Is this wise for you to be part of? And as you graciously prepare yourself to be challenged and graciously confront people, graciously prepare yourself to accept an explanation. If we act like this as a church, we will grow together. We will grow as a family, and we will see great spiritual blessing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for setting up the church, for setting it up as a way where we can have accountability, where we can graciously grow together. And as I think about the events in Joshua 22, I can't help but praise you for the way that you worked, the way you modeled accountability for us. Graciousness seemed to dominate that conversation. I pray that you would help us to graciously build each other up. Graciously sharpen us. Father, we know that your will for us is to live our life modeled after Christ, growing to be more like you, growing in our holiness, our willingness to live life the way you have us to live it. I pray, Lord, that we would grow together as a church, sharpening each other, holding each other accountable. In Jesus' name, amen.